This podcast is sponsored by Schaefer Cullen Capital Management, a boutique asset management firm based in New York City. We manage approximately $23 billion in total assets and are excited to be celebrating our 40th year anniversary in 2023. We remain independently owned and operated and have built a strong reputation in the industry as disciplined Ben Graham value style investors, focusing on quality companies, attractive valuations, and sticking with that discipline for the long term. For years, we have partnered with advisors to manage a piece of their clients' financial capital, but we recognize the growing need to also support an individual's human capital. Whether you're a family office, wealth advisor, or portfolio manager, we all are being called upon to do more than just offer investment ideas. And at Schaefer Cullen, we've curated a list of resources and consultants to educate and help develop those skills. Today, we're delighted to bring to the podcast, Jeff Stresa. Jeff is an executive coach and consultant whom we work with now for several years. If you're interested in learning more about Schaefer Collins portfolios and the resources and content we share with our clients, you can reach out to us via our website, www.cullenfunds.com. machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The weighing machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, Emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, emotional intelligence. What does it mean and why is it important for financial advisors to understand? We will discuss how to incorporate EQ, active listening, and other concepts to improve your practice and strengthen your relationships with clients. That's with our guest, Jeff Stresa, behavioral finance expert and consultant. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. All right, well, hey, let's start with a look at the markets. Rusty, how's the second quarter shaping up? Well, we are recording this in late April, so let's review five quick factors on the market. So we are in earnings season, and the level and trend of earnings isn't necessarily a positive right now. So the second factor is valuations and the market is still expensive by historical standards. However, the third factor, interest rates, given how low interest rates are in historical context, that lessens sort of the negative signal from valuations. However, we do have an inverted yield curve. That's another issue. The fourth factor is policy. And we are in the third year of a presidential cycle. That's usually a good year and we're right on track to a good start. And the fifth and final, Factors behavioral, and as we like to say on the podcast, the market over the long term is a weighing machine looking at things such as earnings and valuations, but over the shorter term, it's looking at emotion and behavioral elements. So bottom line, short term positive, but we are watching the storm clouds. And if you wrap it all up, obviously we're dealing with mixed signals, but we always are. And the key principles of staying invested, staying diversified, and staying disciplined are as important as ever. And that last point, staying disciplined, We all know it's easier said than done, and that is where behavioral finance comes in and why financial advisors are important, and today's guest is going to hit on some of those key topics in that space. 
Awesome. Well, let's bring him in. Jeff Strace is a behavioral finance expert and principal at Jeff Strace Consulting Group in Dallas, Texas. Jeff, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Good to have you. So Jeff, our initiation right on our podcast is we need to have a walk-up song. What is your walk-up song for today's podcast that we can hear in our heads? Well, I'm going to go old school here, and I like Crosby, Stills, and Nash because I'm, I'm a 70s guy, and I like the song Dark Star. Dark Star, all right. A new song to our playlist. Yeah. I like it. Nice. All right, Jeff, let's talk about your background a little bit. You have degrees in psychology and counselor education, and you spent 20 years in human resources at Southern Methodist University, and you're still a faculty member there while running your own consulting firm. So can you tell us more about your background and what it is that you specialize in? Yes, I would say that where I'm at in my career now really is a convergence of several disciplines. I actually started my career as a marriage and family therapist, but early in my career, I went into organizational development. So I really went into business and industry, trying to help leaders and organizations navigate change, working on leadership development skills and the like. And I built my career while I was tethered to university here based in Dallas When you work at a university for a long period of time as an administrator, they give you a lot of time off. They don't always pay you as well, but they give you a lot of time off. And so I was able to build a consulting practice and an executive coaching practice and teach in the business school as an adjunct faculty member, which is what I still do today. I did a stint in wealth management, which really got me into this whole family enterprise. About eight years ago, I was doing some consulting with a local multifamily office here in Dallas, and I worked alongside the senior advisor in building advisor development program. And they created a role for me. I worked for a couple of years as a consultant, and they created a role as a chief talent and learning officer. So I did about five years with that firm. And then in 2020, I transitioned into back to teaching more at SMU and and full-time consulting. So my primary focus really is around leadership development and family learning initiatives. Well, Jeff, so a lot of people think of financial advising as being about numbers and financial data, but really it's about relationships and understanding people, which is where you come in and why the work you do is so valuable for advisors. So first, let's talk about some of the main concepts that are important for advisors to understand. So starting with EQ, what does that mean and why do advisors need to understand it? So EQ is an acronym for emotional intelligence, just like IQ is shorthand for intelligence quotient. And what I think what we've seen specifically in the financial advising space is that having a baseline of financial and technical and legal skills is really an incomplete package, I believe, in this day and age, because there's so much complexity working with clients, as well as there is a lot of, I would say, disruption financially in the markets, post-pandemic, and with a lot of generational wealth transfer types of plannings, advisors just need more qualitative skills. And so the advisors that I work closely with over the years that have worked alongside me to develop some curriculum and some approaches to advisor development are advisors that I think are spectacular in their interpersonal skills. And so this isn't just about business development. It's not just about getting new clients and and bringing AUM into the firm. This is about really an advisor who has just incredible empathy and active listening skills and can facilitate meetings and who can who can do coaching, you know, they provide coaching kinds of services with clients. And that's where I think the foundation of behavioral finance really comes from. That's just the baseline. When you begin to add on other kinds of qualitative skills like emotional intelligence and active listening, that's when you have, I believe, a very well-rounded seasoned advisor. 
So where did exactly the idea of EQ really begin? What's kind of the history of this concept? And what are really some of the main principles behind it? I know you touched on it a little bit, but what's some of the main concepts behind EQ? So EQ stems from a movement over 30 years ago called positive psychology. And positive psychology was a research-based focus where psychologists were beginning to shift their focus away from just researching and treating people with mental disease, but really looking at positive factors of psychology. And so entire industries were built around helping people build upon their strengths, like strengths-based types of testing and coaching and curriculum and emotional intelligence in particular. Because of my counseling background, I gravitated to this really quickly in my work as a practitioner in business and industry. To me, it is a perfect bridge to work with business-minded people. Sometimes I think in the past, these kinds of topics would have been dumbed down as soft skills or touchy-feely or kumbaya. And that to me is a tremendous oversight for a well-rounded professional to do that. That's why what I'm trying to do in my work and on some of these podcasts I've been on, Rusty and Robin, is to really help us all reframe them as qualitative skills. That approach, I think, credentializes the work. I think it incentivizes professionals to attend training, to get coaching themselves, to really build their emotional and psychological capacity to deal with all of this complexity. So you've also talked about the active listening mindset. Can you explain what that is and how can people adopt it? You know, I think that active listening is really a deceptively simple practice, especially in this day and age and in the digital age and with everything that's going on with us post-pandemic. There's so much clutter, right? There's so much clutter in our heads and there's a lot of anxiety. And I think it's more important now than ever to, if we're helping others make important life decisions, not just about their financial capital, but other kinds of big decisions about generational wealth transfer and estate planning and and family mission and values and those kinds of things. Active listening is really a very important set of skills to, in a sense, basically turn down the volume in our own heads so that we are truly in tune with not just the thoughts and the ideas or the concerns of others, but ultimately, again, the emotions of others. And that's where active listening, empathic listening are such really important skills. That's a lot of the work I do in my executive coaching with advisors and other business professionals is really help them master those kinds of skills and bring that into their work. Well, another thing that you've talked about is emotional hijacking. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So let's go back to a little bit of the elements of emotional intelligence and really what they are. You know, really the first and basic line of emotional intelligence is really around self-awareness. Recently, Stanford University did a study in their executive education program, polling business and industry leaders around what they thought were some of the most important leadership skills and self-awareness came up as number one. And it's really the ability to understand how your communication style impacts other people, particularly under stress or when there's tension. And then an emotionally intelligent person builds that awareness so that they can adapt and flex their style and to effectively navigate the emotions of others. So the emotional hijack, or in a neurological term, it's called the amygdala hijack, which is the emotional sentinel in the brain where that's what directs your emotions. The hijack occurs is when we perceive some stimuli, we're driving down the road, we get cut off, we get a negative email, somebody rolls their eyes in a meeting, fill in the blank. 
we get hijacked in some way. We perceive that stimuli to be threatening, threatening to our ego, threatening to our well-being. And listen, as I said a moment ago, with all this clutter and anxiety and all these sorts of things that are sort of going on in today's society and with all of us, I don't know about you, but I'm more easily hijacked than I was years ago. And so there's some work to be done. That's part of the journey of emotional intelligence. It's to be able to get into wellness practices where I am recalibrating my mindset, the way I'm taking care of my body. All of those things matter when we're in high pressure types of professions. Great. There's a couple more terms I want to go over too. I think these are concepts that are detrimental for an advisor, or quite frankly, anyone who wants to have strong, healthy relationships. And the first term is, what does overgeneralization mean? So there are some, what I would say, archetypal patterns for us when we are emotionally, I would say, compromised. And as smart as we are, this is where IQ plus EQ is what makes, I think, a well-rounded advisor. You can be the smartest person in the room, but if you can't navigate emotions or tensions, then all of us can fall into some of these archetypal patterns, the first of which is overgeneralization, turning a single event into a continual pattern. I mean, how many times have we done that in our personal life when we've had some kind of conflict, we've overgeneralized things. So even if we're behaving appropriate with colleagues or clients, if the narrative that's sort of running underneath, you know, that we're ruminating on different kinds of tensions or conflict, overgeneralization is, is a pattern that could really cause us to stumble. So that's one of several other, I think, archetypal patterns. And what about the term labeling? So that's pretty straightforward. That's just attaching a negative label to others, whole groups of people. Professionally, I've seen that occur within organizations sometimes where, you know, we can label, you know, back office or HR or, you know, business development people are always like this or and those sorts of cultural behaviors can really minimize the effectiveness of the overall culture. I've always believed this. I believe advisory firms need to see themselves as learning organizations. If the insides and the guts and the culture of the organizations do not match the outsides, in other words, the way we treat clients, the way we interact with them, we always put on our best with clients, right? But if the insides are siloed or messy or there's not cohesion, it ultimately will dumb down the effectiveness of the overall firm and its growth and its potential. So, you know, labeling is a very negative type of behavior any of us can fall into without emotional regulation and uh, practicing these good listening skills. Hmm. A couple more for you. And these two concepts appear to be related, but opposites. Blame game and personalization. Yeah, so good point there. They are kind of maybe the different sides of the same coin in a way, really. It's blame game. First of all, is sort of, it's the emotional reaction to something coming in our way where we feel threatened or minimized or disrespected in some way. And so we're not assuming enough personal responsibility for a situation. I mean, how many times have we worked with sometimes very assertive or even aggressive colleagues that, you know, even over drinks, they'll just sort of blame other people about different things. You know, I've done that myself and I'm not perfect, but I just think that's a character issue. When I've seen people get into that sort of behavior, the other side of the coin is the personalization, which is what I tend to struggle with. That's just sort of my, that's my personality makeup, is that when I've gone through times of stress or tension in my career, I assume too much responsibility for a situation. You know, I'll have a situation happen in the office and I'm driving home and I'm ruminating the whole time and I don't even know how I get home. You ever had that kind of thing happen, right? And then my mind's just sort of ruminating. I go into the weekend, I go to my kid's soccer game. I'm not even 
I'm distracted on my phone. I'm answering email. You know, these are the kinds of hamster wheels that I can see professionals get into that where they don't take the time and have the discipline to recalibrate and calm the mind and really get to the source of the stimuli and be more objective around why it upset me to begin with. These are really important things for us to think about professionally. Without those practices of recalibrating, reading, learning, getting coaching, then we could be an excellent financial advisor on technique. But I just believe advisors will absolutely plateau in their career. They will not go to a level of advanced advising without paying attention to these kinds of things. So, Jeff, finally, what do you mean by the expression discounting the positive? So I think this is when, again, in one of the other archetypal patterns here that we can get into when we're negatively interpreting things is discounting the positive. It's rejecting or ignoring positive experiences where it's not just being, you know, Eeyore and just grumpy all the time. It's our mindset has fallen into a pattern of just feeling negative about certain things, whether that's a client situation or something internal within the firm. All of us have those moments. It's just not a good place to stay. And if any of these sort of patterns are, are happening with you, what I would encourage encourage you to do is to really kind of pause, take some inventory, process it, and talk about with somebody who can really help you kind of get to the bottom of what these triggers are doing. So you've also talked about the concept of wealth 3.0. Can you explain what that is and how it can help advisors put those ideas we've been talking about into practice? Sure. Well, 3.0, this is a construct based on some research by Jim Grubman, Dennis Chaffee, and Kristen Keffler. And I think it's a helpful tool for advisors to look at kind of a capture of the evolution of advisors in the advisor industry. It is their point of view of this evolution and specifically from 1.0, 2.0 into 3.0, which I'll explain more in a minute why it's so important now for us to be having these kinds of discussions, for us to be doing advisor development that is more holistic, so that we're actually working more on the industry of advisor, building upon the financial, technical, legal acumen, and building these other qualitative skills. So basically, and briefly, Wealth 1.0 has been around ever since attorneys and investments professionals have been trying to protect wealth from risk and taxation. That's just sort of the original trade that we engaged professionals to help people navigate their wealth. And that's been around a very long time. Wealth 2.0 really began probably 30, 40 years ago when other disciplines came into the mix to help families prepare for wealth transfer. So this was going beyond just trust and estate planning, but moving into other disciplines like philanthropy and family governance and family office services. That's kind of when the family office really was born. Now, there have been family offices around for a long time, but in terms of the proliferation of them so prevalent now, after there's a liquidity event or there's an operating business that moves and wants to be able to move sort of their family business into a separate type of entity to serve the broader family. That whole cottage industry really started then. And then now, of course, it's grown to what we know now as a single family office space. What the authors are saying is that during the last 30 or 40 years, what many well-intentioned advisors would do at times is to, with the intent of helping their clients manage risk, is they would ask the proverbial question, what keeps you up at night, right? We've all heard that, with the intention of trying to help them mitigate the risk. What the authors are saying is, is that in some cases that might have worked in a negative sense. It might have caused families to worry about 
their wealth, worry about their children becoming entitled, worry, and using sometimes that sort of practice to cause people to be overly cautious and the downsides of risk. The Wealth 3.0 perspective, quite simply, is using more of a positive psychology approach, which is what we talked about a moment ago with emotional intelligence. It's a way of trying to coach and advise family members around what is possible with wealth, to focus on legacy, to focus on fiduciary responsibilities that younger generations can understand. So you've got to put it in different terms. Again, that's why I think behavioral finance and emotional intelligence go perfectly well together. It's just sort of a new generational view of how to approach that. So the skill of using emotional intelligence, coaching, facilitating meetings, that facilitating meeting is a whole different way of approaching client interface than just running a meeting. Facilitating a meeting requires the skill of watching nonverbal behavior, making sure that silent spouses or are, are you're drawing them up, uh, looking for opportunities to bring adult children into planning and discussion and ultimately a potential family meetings and things like that. So it's all about evolving the advisor more as a coach and, and a facilitator of that family engagement. All right. Well, let's switch gears to some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And the first one is, considering your experience working with financial advisors for so many years and from your vantage point in the industry, what is currently your favorite investment idea? You know, I would have to answer that from a different perspective, maybe that comes from a formally trained financial advisor. And I would come from a perspective more as an educator and a coach of families. I've done a lot of family learning engagements and family meetings and have worked with rising generation family members. I believe what is so important for them so that they can really embrace their value set around wealth is to get them involved in things that they're interested in, like social impact investing and philanthropic strategies. Generally, I would say that these are the kinds of things that are going to capture the imagination of those younger generational family members. And what I believe it happens to them is it broadens their perspective of wealth, that it's, you know, you build upon a good strategy for return and not but, and you're getting them involved, their hearts and their minds involved in the impact of that wealth. And that's what we're hearing. That's what we're seeing in the research from the rising generational constituents and, and focus groups, particularly that family office exchange is involved in. That's what we're hearing from that generation is they really want to understand the impact of the wealth, not just building it and not just getting the absolute best return and saving as much money as they can. You know, it's just more, it's more to them than that. I got to admit, I love that question. I love to see where people take it. And that was a great answer. So thank you. All right. The next question is, you kind of mentioned this earlier, why it's so important, but please tell us a little bit about your routine and daily practices that help you maintain your energy and ability to perform at a high level. Any recommendations? You know, I've been working with very successful people for a long time in my career across industries, really, from physicians and attorneys to educators and administrators. And what I try to emphasize on all of these people is well-being and sustaining that well-being. Again, we're moving into a space now where I think it is much more widely accepted to talk about these things. Again, I'll say especially coming out of pandemic. When so many people were searching for purpose and meaning, so many big life decisions were going on, a lot of my executive coaching focused on these kinds of things. I would say fundamentally that it's holistic. It's mind, body, spirit. Personally, I lean on my faith. I stay active. 
I dabbled in art and music to try to keep the right brain juices going. In fact, during the pandemic, I personally went through some very significant changes in 2020. I lost a parent. My daughter got married in our house with 30 people <laughs> instead, of a, instead of a wedding venue. I had a major career transition. One thing in particular that really helped me with the grief of my parent that passed away, she was an artist and she was a beloved art teacher. And I learned to paint as a kid and I did a little bit in college, but I picked up painting again and I started painting and I set up an easel in my home office. You know, everybody was zooming from home and I was doing the same thing. And I threw myself into that. And what it helped me do was work on the grief of my parent, but it also helped me be present with my clients because I was able to settle some things internally, emotionally. And then when I was able to meet with my clients and be all there for them, uh, I was completely present for them. So, you know, I just think it's so important to surround yourself with people that you, you care about and sharpen you. I've mentioned coaching quite a few times on this call. I believe every successful professional ought to have a coach, whether that's a peer coach or informally or a professional coach. I just think that without that, any of us can fall into a subjective mindset about our own ability, our own strengths, our own weaknesses. And so the most successful leaders I've ever seen are the most humble because they've got a coach. They know what their weaknesses are. They work on them. They talk about them. And when people talk about what they're working on in that way, it is a trust accelerator, right? We all want authenticity. We all want transparency. So those are some things that I try to practice myself. And as a coach, I try to instill in others. Wow, great answer. Well, related to that is we've all had mentors in our life too. So when you think about the people who have helped you get to where you are today, who are some of these people you're professionally thankful for? And what are some of the key lessons you learned? Yeah, I've been blessed to have many, many fine mentors over the course of my career. I've worked in different industries. I've worked in healthcare. I've worked in higher education. And I've, of course, worked in wealth management. I probably could name people from each one of those. I would say probably what's resonating with me now as you ask that question, Rusty, is Jay Hughes. He is an author and consultant. He's well-known in our industry, particularly someone who has worked on the industry and around families that are flourishing. He and I have been friends for about four years. We met at a conference and we meet every month without fail on a Zoom call. He's retired and lives in Colorado. I say retired, not really. He's retired from traveling and doing active client work, but now he works with people like me as a mentor and a coach to people like me. I think one of the things that has impacted me the most in working with and knowing Jay is his amazing command of many, many disciplines around social psychology. I mean, he's a trained estate attorney, but he understands all sorts of disciplines that come into play that add a lot of wisdom to family enterprise and family business. That has been really one very important relationship. I would say the second one in family enterprise is Richard Joyner. He's the president of a multifamily office based here in Dallas called Tolleson Wealth Management. He is a gentleman who hired me eight years ago while I was at SMU as an administrator and faculty and for me to come in and custom design and work with him on some advisor training. And then they created a role. I was a full-time staff member there for about five years, and we continue to collaborate on other kinds of educational initiatives. He's just, a, I would say, a thought leader in around advisor development and an early adopter, a lot of these qualitative kinds of initiatives. 
All right, one more before we let you go, and that is what are you listening to or reading at the moment? Do you have any recommendations for our listeners on books or podcasts, anything like that? You know, there's a couple things that I that I like to listen to. Sometimes I toggle between something that is specific around the industry that I think is important, you know, whether it's a new book out from a thought leader in family learning. But I also like to toggle over to other things that inspire me as well. A couple things that I would kind of recommend is I would recommend Daniel Goldman's quintessential book titled Emotional Intelligence. I think that's just a fundamental read that all of us should do to really understand the components of that. I always tell my students at SMU, I teach an executive education class there on emotional intelligence, that if you're really interested in this topic and you want to get better at it, you've got to lean into it. There's a ton of stuff out there on emotional intelligence. You can just go find your way. But I think you got to start with Daniel Goleman. Also, another quintessential book is Simon Sinek's book is Start With Why, especially if you are an advisor and you are beginning to lead other people within a team or you're leading client engagements. This is a great book on leadership. I think it really helps focus us and center us on how to motivate people, not just get them to do better work by telling them how this is really starting with why. Those are a couple of books that I would recommend. So Jeff, this has been a really great conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And tell us how can listeners stay in touch with you and learn more about the work that you're doing? Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You can follow me on LinkedIn, where I repost a lot of podcasts and other interesting things I'm involved in professionally. Also, I would just like to say I consult with the Family Office Exchange to deliver a family advisor training program, which I'm very proud of. I'm the lead instructor in that program. And I think it really gets at a lot of the skills we've been talking about today. It's a comprehensive transformational program. It's really geared towards mid to senior level advisors that want to gain these qualitative skills. So if you're interested in that, go check that out on our website, Family Office Exchange. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think our show notes are going to be loaded with really cool links. But I was listening to this and I realized I forgot one question I should have asked earlier. And that is everybody's talking about artificial intelligence right now. And we're all still trying to figure out what it means. In your experience, what have been some of your early findings about artificial intelligence, how it might impact the world of financial advice? You know, when I was back at the multifamily office, we talked about this a lot. And, you know, this would have been about five years ago, sort of the impending inevitable presence of AI in this space. And obviously there's some early modeling and things going on. I think the most important advice I would have coming from an advisor development perspective is to prepare for change, you know, to prepare to be able to adapt and accommodate so that if there is a usable tool that comes along that takes on some of the the fundamentals of portfolio construction, rather than worrying about, oh my gosh, I'm a portfolio strategist, I'm going to be out of business. You know, how can you pivot your wisdom? How can you pivot your expertise into another way of helping clients? Because there's plenty of need out there. So I would just say embrace change and uh, be prepared to pivot. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Well, first, I'd like to thank Schaefer Cullen for introducing us to Jeff for this podcast. And other than that, invest well and be well. Okay, we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, if you like this episode, please remember to subscribe. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. 
First, we have the Weighing the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top-of-mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top-rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's Weekly Standard Deviations Podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisors Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.